Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. This is episode number seven, recorded in November 2018, and today I talk with Emma Ridley. Emma is a senior research fellow at the ANZIC Research Centre in Melbourne, Australia, where she's responsible for the development and leadership of the Critical Care Nutrition Research Programme. She also works as a senior clinical dietitian in the intensive care unit at the Alfred Hospital. Her research interests include understanding the optimum way to determine energy requirements in the critically ill, as well as the effect of optimal nutrition delivery on ICU patients, and she completed her PhD last year. And big congratulations to Emma. She has just been awarded an investigator grant from the National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia to identify evidence and practice gaps to inform future research and global practice of nutrition provision and critical illness, a huge achievement. In this episode, Emma and I talk about why nutrition is important and what we can all do at the bedside to support nutritional therapy in our intensive care patients. We also talk about her PhD journey, the highs, the lows, and why self-care after your PhD is of huge importance. So grab a cuppa, sit back, and enjoy the interview with Emma Ridley. So, Emma Ridley, (laughs) thank you for having me here today at the ANZIC RC in Melbourne. Um, So that's the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Research Centre, which is based, based at Monash University. Um, Emma is a senior clinical dietitian, both at the Alfred Hospital and also um, here at the ANZIC RC, she's a senior research fellow and manages the nutrition program. So thank you for coming and talking to me today. Thank you, Rachel. It's great to have a chat. Great to have a dietitian on board too. Thank you. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Often the forgotten sort of members of the team who lurk at the back of the ward rounds. And <laughs> yeah, depends what ward round you're on, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about um, your position at the Alfred and then here at the ANZIC RC as well. Yeah, so um, I've been a clinical dietitian for about 14 years now. Um, most of that has been in ICU. Um, but I've worked across both the subacute and acute settings. So I do have experience across, I, I would say, most clinical settings. Um, but very early on, I knew that critical care was somewhere that I really wanted to be. I felt that nutrition was important and, and it was something that we could really assist with. And I also uh, love the medical side of intensive care and the physiology and how that interacts with the physiology of nutrition and the metabolism of nutrition. So I've really made um, that a career focus for me in terms of um, my clinical dietetics um, space but it it came very obvious to me early on that we really didn't know a lot Um, and that became frustrating because I really wanted to be able to provide the best advice I could about nutrition but um, 
the doctors don't really get taught much at all so that was one problem they didn't really understand a lot of what I understood but then when I got questioned about the evidence I couldn't really provide those answers and that happened very early on and I thought mm, I really um, need to probably do something about this and I started doing a little bit of research in the in the HIV area because mm-hmm. I was working there at that time um, and I must just have a research personality because very early on they pulled me in and were like you need to do some work with us I was like okay <laughs> um, so I did 12 months with them and um, I was very lucky to have a great mentor in that space and um, he was very influential I guess in my sort of decision to want to do re- research so it had a bit of exposure um, that way And then a job came up here at the ANZIC RC, actually, um, and I was working in ICU and I thought, no, if I really want to do this, that's probably somewhere that I need to try and um, go. And it was a pretty bold decision because I had to stop working clinically full time Mm -hmm. and I came here to the ANZIC RC to work two days a week doing research. Um, And I did that for probably six or seven years before I started to do my PhD, so combined um, clinical and Mm -hmm research work which was a really nice introduction um, to research and at the same time did an MPH as well to get a bit of um, background training in research methodology. Mm. What do you think are the benefits of you know maintaining that sort of clinical side? Oh look I think it's essential it's really difficult so I'm at the period the phase now where I've really decided to go into the research space and develop my career in that area but I'm still a clinician at heart and I still have a lot of expertise so from the hospital side of thing they're really keen to keep me there because I have a lot of expertise I can share with the clinicians and I really enjoy that Mm. and I think that's really important from a research point of view because it helps keep your research projects current and it also means I can understand what's going on in the real world when I'm trying to think about Mm. research and product projects we might develop Um, there's no point developing something that the clinicians are going to say well we're not going to do that or that's not relevant so I think um, it's really important but it does become a real juggle as you get become more senior because it just is another pull on your time you know Mm. and it's really hard to decide where you should focus but I I do think um, at this point it's something that I need to continue to do and I do want to do that Um, and I think at least some sort of clinical appointment is important so Mm. to start with I was more clinical and less research then I did a PhD and I actually didn't do any clinical Um, I did full-time research and a little bit of clinical here and there sometimes I filled in or helped out Um, I had a baby and went on maternity leave so I didn't go back to clinical after that but now that I've finished I have gone back just one day and I just do one morning in ICU um, clinically and then I sort of lead and oversees and see the nutrition service with some of the other clinical dietitians at the Alfred so um, that's really important I think but it is a challenge because I certainly don't get to know the team as well as Mm. the other dietitians Um, and in the time that I've been away the service has changed and I don't know all the doctors as well as some of the others that I know so that's a challenge Um, but I think the benefits at the moment outweigh the the negatives I guess Mm. yeah and so looking at nutrition as a, an ICU therapy, <laughs> because it is, it's one of our sort of, yeah. you know, stock standard um, things that we try and throw at yeah. our patients, isn't it? Yeah. Um, do people see nutrition as important in the ICU <laughs> um, from a dietitian's perspective? I think that depends on the ICU that you're in <laughs> um, and the dietitians that you work with. Um, I think, look, nutrition's having a bit of a moment at the moment. Mm. And 
I think it, it was something that everyone thought was very important, but we didn't have a lot of evidence. And now there's been a lot of research and high quality research, large papers, big publications. And I think that's really, really excellent and it's what we needed. But it's changed the focus a little bit. And I, I think the, a lot of those large trials have not shown any benefit with nutrition. Some have shown harm, but I'd, I'd say on the whole, most of them have just been no difference trials. There's not been any difference with the interventions. Um, and I think that sort of led people to think, oh, well, maybe nutrition is not important. And I don't think that's the answer. I think um, that we're starting to work out that maybe the ways we apply nutrition at the moment un is not correct. And I think there's a lot more physiology and science we need to consider with nutrition. And that's something that I'm really um, interested in. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's easy to think that nutrition is just a fluid and just apply it like a fluid and it, that it's not that there's a lot of metabolic processes that go underneath um you know the, the way patients process nutrients how metabolism changes over time and they're things we haven't really looked at um, in detail in recent times there's been quite a lot of good physiology work um in a, a very long time ago but it's mm. not really something we've looked at now um, so I think nutrition is important, but I think the way we've been applying it lately perhaps doesn't let us understand the importance of it. Um, and I do think that the importance changes over time. So I think mm. what we've learned is maybe early on just providing some enteral nutrition or tube feeding is important, but perhaps the amount doesn't matter so much. Mm. But I do think as patients stay longer in the ICU and those patients that you know are very unwell, it is going to be important. We just haven't worked out what that time point is mm -hmm. yet. But hopefully in 10 years' time, we'll be able to answer <laughs> that question for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it? You yeah. know, it's constantly changing yeah. landscape um, yeah. with little bits being added to the evidence all the time. Yeah. Um, what do we know now that maybe we didn't sort of, you know, four or five years ago that improves the, the care of our patients from a nutrition perspective? I think um, that we need to pay respect to the patient's metabolic phase. I think that's really important. I think we know that, you know, I think a fair while ago, people just thought nutrition didn't really make a difference and maybe it wasn't even harmful. But I think we have learnt that if we provide nutrition in the wrong patients in large amounts, it can be harmful. And so we do need to pay respect to the patients that actually need it. Um, and then be mindful of what phase of illness they're in. So early on, we probably don't want to be filling them up with huge amounts of um, energy and protein. We might just want to let them get through that really acute phase. But then after that point, we need to really intervene. And I think that's a good development because it allows dietitians to actually target their resources as well and mm. where we need to be. Um, and I think I think based on the evidence that's, that's coming out recently, we'll see a, sort of an evolution in that role and perhaps... Um, you know, be able to tailor our interventions a lot better to the patients that actually need it. Mm. Um, and the other growing population um, that we really don't know a lot about at the moment is the patients that eat and drink in ICU. Yeah. Um, and they're the ones that we really haven't studied at all and there's there's more of them um, and they're, you know, not able to really meet their nutrition needs at all and we don't know the impact of that on them. So that's another group that um, we really need to focus on, I think, to improve the care of our mm. patients because... Um, historically it's all been artificial tube feeding but that population has changed so we need to focus on them to make sure they also have good nutrition yeah. care. Do you think the um, patients you know once they're sort of extubated and can eat and drink they sort of tend to not get forgotten about but you know they're not as uh, sort of um, 
not high on the radar, yeah, are they, no, no. in terms of nutrition? Yeah. yeah. It's not that they get forgotten, but I know what you're saying. We don't have the resources, so yeah. they, they are lower priority. And as soon as you do not have artificial nutrition in our ICU, it's not that we don't want to see you, but we don't have time to really mm. um, spend that time with the patients, unfortunately. So I think that's a huge gap and it's something we need to really focus on. Mm. And, um, you know, unfortunately, there's a bit of culture of de-plumbing. So that's, you know, that's an ICU thing, and I certainly understand that moving the patients on we want to take the lines out and they can't go to um, the ward with the central line and things so we have to do that um, however with nasogastrics sometimes they're taken out far before the patient can actually eat and there's not a lot of data on this but the small amount of data that we do have shows that if patients are unwell and are not going to eat just taking the tube out doesn't really stimulate their appetite and unfortunately what it does do is set them backwards in terms of their nutrition recovery and it might actually be that the later ICU phase or the phase on the ward is when we can get nutritional recovery mm. um, but we're setting those patients backwards so that's that's something that we'll be exploring in some some research Mm. coming up is there some basic things that you know at the bedside as nurses or you know whoever pops into the bed space um can do in the meantime to sort of you know encourage patients with nutrition and to sort of try and redress some of these imbalances yeah i think um i think it's really important that everyone is involved in nutrition i don't think it's just the dietitian's job i think we should be the advocate and we should be the expert in providing advice to maybe tailor things or if there's if things are not going well certainly we should be the ones providing suggestions to the team but absolutely everyone should be involved in sort of that part of the patient care so on the ward round advocating if the patients had lots of um, times for fasting you know saying hey the feeds have been off this is the Mm -hmm. second day do we have to do this or what's the plan because the patient hasn't had feeds for 24 hours that sort of stuff Um, and because we look after a large number of patients across the ICU at any one time sometimes we can't be across absolutely everything that's going on so that person at the bedside is our best resource to say hey what do you think we should do or just flag it with the dietitian to say I think we need to have a better review here because something's going on Mm. Um, and I think for patients that are actually eating and drinking just encouraging um, them to to do that is helpful and I often hear people say oh the hospital food is disgusting I wouldn't eat it either that's not that helpful (laughs) because the patient has to eat it and I completely understand why people say that and it's very frustrating for dietitians because that's our tool you Mm. know and unfortunately often the hospital doesn't support us with the tool so it's very hard to get patients to eat when the food is not up to scratch and we understand that probably better than anyone Um, but actually being encouraging of trying some food is really important and saying things like you don't have to eat much just have a couple of spoons and that's enough because Mm -hmm. you'll find if a patient does that at each meal or snack then they're going to get a lot more in than if they just tried to eat a whole meal which they'll never do Mm. Um, and the other thing that can be done is getting patients to take um, medications not with water but with a nutritional supplement because that way you are getting fluid in um, Mm. that's nourishing and it's not just water Mm. so trying to encourage that are just they're just small things but it does help yeah still adds the overall balance each day yeah yeah so you brought up you know one of those sort of age-old questions when you're discussing that um nasogastric feeds do they need to be stopped prior to procedures for hours and hours oh god <laughs> <laughs> uh well again look this is based on evidence from a long time ago and and 
usually for patients without a protected airway, that there's a risk of aspiration. And of course, we do not want to put patients at risk Mm -hmm. of aspiration. Um, I certainly know some hospitals in Melbourne that do not fast for extubation. They just aspirate the stomach and um, pull out the tube and they have had really no complications. Mm -hmm. And so it's certainly happening. Um, Patients should really only fast um, for a surgery if they're having manipulation of the airway or if they're having a gastrointestinal surgery. That's not what happens, but that's sort of the recommendations that are put forward when you look at the evidence. But that's not what happens because um, anaesthetists and intensivists alike feel nervous about not doing Mm -hmm. that and maybe they've had a bad experience and they don't feel comfortable with that. And so we have to respect that, but I think any time that we can improve on the amount of time that patients are fasting is better. Um, And fasting is one of the biggest problems with actually getting enteral Mm -hmm. nutrition into our patients. And you know, the, the studies that have been done recently sort of show that short duration feeding, even if it's only sort of 50% of what the patients require, hasn't really altered outcomes as far as we know. But they're not the patients we're worried about. We're, we're worried about the patients that have repeated fasting that stay a long time and they're the ones that accrue a really big nutritional deficit, mm-hmm. um, haven't really been studied well and, and they're the ones we're sort of worried about trying to optimise nutrition. So I think the fasting issue can easily accrue in terms of nutritional deficit. So anything we can do to try and shorten those periods is really, really important. And we rely on the nurses for that too, just to say, mm-hmm. hey, do the feeds really have to be off? Um, You know, sometimes we run into trouble with um, doctors might rotate and they might come in from an external unit and be like, I'll fast from midnight. And that's not actually what we do in ICU, but they might write that and then the nurse Mm -hmm. follows through with that. So just making sure you're constantly on top of what you do in your ICU. And if you're seeing um, strange practices creep in, then it might be time to audit what you do or have a look back at what's going on so that you can feed back to the unit and say for some reason, these types of patients are fasting a long time. Can we look at that? Mm. Oh, good tips. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you mentioned your PhD. And so do you want to tell us a little bit about what that looked at yeah. <laughs> and um, and how you found the whole thing? <laughs> sure. well, I have to say at Start this point, I only finished at the start of the year, so it's all still a bit raw. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so the title of my PhD is Energy Optimization in Critically Ill Adults. So it focused around energy sort of topics. And The um, main piece of work was a pilot RCT of supplemental parental nutrition delivered for seven days um, as a means to look at if we could increase energy delivery in critically ill adults. Um, And it was conducted in six ICUs in Australia and New Zealand. So that study got funded um, back in 2012-2013. So we knew that that was coming up. Um, And I was looking to do a PhD. I was thinking about it at that time. Um, So the purpose of me telling you this is because really my PhD focused around that piece of work because we knew it was coming up. And it was not that I was in love with supplemental PN or I I am very interested in energy and metabolism. It is a very um, big focus of mine. And in our ICU at the Alfred, we use indirect calorimetry, which measures energy requirements. So I do have that keen interest. Um, but in terms of supplemental PN, I mean, I think it's a strategy to use and, and I, I use it regularly in my practice, but it was not that I really wanted to research that topic. And I think that's key, though, that if you have a project that seems to fit and it's funded, which was very important mm. because I didn't have to worry about finding the funding once I started my PhD um, and it was going to happen, 
then I would use it if you can, because that um, it meant by the time that I actually started my PhD, we'd done the ethics the year before, it was ready to start recruiting. And that's probably one of the best things we could have done because it um, really made sure that I met my timelines from a PhD point of view. Um, So the rest of it then just focused around energy related um, questions and pieces of work that fitted together with that study. Um, and you know things just sort of came up so we did um, an observational or an analysis of a large database looking at particularly energy prescription and energy delivery practices using a, a large international data set so we were able to do that we did the RCT I did a systematic review looking at energy delivery um, so there was various pieces of work around that um, and then we also started to look at what happens on the ward following critical illness around energy and protein delivery as well so it's a nice story that kind of fitted together Mm. but it all focused around that first Mm. um, piece of work Um, the other thing that I did is I worked for a long time clinically and I also had research experience before my PhD Um, and that's not what everyone does but I think it's quite a good thing to do if you can if you have that luxury because um, it allowed me to just get some research experience because I had no idea when I first started Um, and to really test out if it was something that I wanted to do Mm. uh, and to have some clinical experience so that I kind of knew what was a relevant question and what sort of things I needed to do. Um, And I think that's not a bad way to do do it rather than just jumping in when you're not really sure Mm. or if you don't have um, clinical experience. Of course, if, if a perfect project just arrived, I would say do it, of course. But it is nice to have had some background and I think for me it worked quite well. Mm. It's interesting because, you know, we often talk about um, if you're going to do either a research project or a higher degree, you know, master's or PhD, that you need to have that passion for your topic and that real interest (laughs) and engagement. But, you know, what you're saying is also highly relevant that, you know, if something kind of almost presents itself on a platter, (laughs) then... As long as you've still got the interest yeah. in it, um, then, you know, it's a really good way to go. Yeah, I certainly had the interest in it. It just wasn't what I thought I would end up doing for my PhD, mm. but I had to just let that go because it was an opportunity that was too good to be true. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, it was really the best decision in terms of um, the way the PhD worked. And then mm. it's led to further funding and more work. So, um, you know, it really was a great decision yeah. to use that. Yeah. And I guess it's looking at the PhD as the journey, not just the destination. You Absolutely. know, it's not yeah. necessarily the final product. No. It's everything you learn along the way. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, now I do get sort of pigeonholed as a supplemental PM researcher. So I just have to reorientate people about that and say, no, we're interested in methods that can optimize energy delivery. And that is certainly one. Um, I am a champion for supplemental PM in that I think it's safe when you use it appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's for everyone, but I think when you do it carefully, which is what we've very um, tried very hard to develop in our research program, I think it's safe. And so, but really, my priority is optimizing nutrition um, for critically ill patients. It's just one method, but yeah. um, that's okay. I can handle that label. I guess <laughs> <laughs> you can break out yeah, from that's it sometime. Right. That's right. I guess the other point I probably like to make is that I had a um, an intensivist primary supervisor. So, and I also am here in an, an intensive care research center, which is not associated with a dietetics um, mm. research center. Um, I studied my dietetics degree through Monash Uni. So Monash University, which we are affiliated with, does have a dietetics um, course. And I think in the future, I'd like to link with them in terms mm. of research opportunities for master's students. But I did my PhD and my research still focuses sort of in the medical mm. domain. 
um, in the School of Public Health and it's separate. And I think that um, for me has worked very well again to immerse me in the um, ICU research culture, including with the RCs, um, but also with the intensivists. And I think that's really, really important. Um, It was challenging because my primary supervisor is an amazing clinician researcher, but he doesn't really have a background in nutrition. And so that was challenging at times because I am the nutrition expert and Mm -hmm. I don't have anyone to really bounce my ideas off from that point of view. with, I then expanded my team and also had an intensivist who has a nutrition interest, so that was helpful. And then I had a physio as well, so I got that allied health sort of insight. And both of those people had recently done PhDs, so could understand you know my perspective. Um, and you know, look, it was good. My primary supervisor is very experienced, and he would challenge me on a lot of my assumptions and things, which is actually very good because it helps me think through with nutrition there is a lot of assumptions and perhaps we just need to be careful with what we assume until we get the evidence and I think that's been a very important lesson for me. Mm, mm. So developing that supervision team um, crucial right from the beginning um, in order to sort of provide support and and did you catch up with them regularly during your PhD time? Yeah, so I had three supervisors. So at the start, people were kind of like, oh, I don't know about three. Um, but I think it's really good and I would recommend it um, if you have the right people, of course. And I would also recommend having a suite of people. So my primary supervisor is extremely busy Um very productive but he's got so many demands on his time so I really only had access to him once a month and I had a regular meeting with him that was scheduled um, and I would go with an agenda and it was very organized and I very much had to manage him but that's fine it worked well and I'm very organized so I basically just made it happen Um, And that was fine. And he was very good if I went to him with um, specific issues. So I'd go to that meeting and be like, I have to, you have to help me with this. Mm. And he would help me sort it out. Outside of those times, it was quite hard to sort of get advice unless I really needed him. Um, But that's okay because he was very good. If I really had a problem, I could ring him or text him and say, I really need your help. I'm like really stuck or something's happened. Um, And he would help me. So Mm. that was good. Um, The other two advisors were um, more of the day-to-day people, I'd say, whereas I could call them or um, Carol, who is the physio who supervised me, is located here. So I could pop around to office and just say, I'm having a practical issue. Can you help me um, with those sorts of things? So having different people that could offer different things is very important. Um, and I think when it comes to actually drafting your thesis and stuff, that's very important because some people are good at getting back to you, other people are not, and so having a suite of people that will provide feedback at different times is important. If everyone on the team is terrible at giving feedback, you'll never get any feedback. Yeah. So it's very important to have um, a mixture where you can. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And did you, um, you said about formatting an agenda before you went to your meetings yeah. did you because I know some people um also sort of write minutes up afterwards and along the yeah, way I did, did you do that yeah. yeah and did you find those yeah. useful did you go back to them or use yeah. them yeah yeah because it was also hard for me to remember what we talked about um and 
Um, I think my primary supervisor really liked it and he's told other people to come and talk to me about it because he wants them to do it like that. So yeah. <laughs> um, I think it worked. <laughs> well, I think for busy people, it's good just to know what you're talking about. And I would send it to him the day before yeah. um, and just say, this is what I would like to talk about. And sometimes he'd looked at it and other times he hadn't, which was fine. Um, but it just also helped keep us on track because yeah. otherwise you go in there and you don't really have a plan. Then you leave and you, you think, oh, well, I didn't actually talk about this and I really needed yeah. his help on that. Um, and then around writing time, when I was writing publications, I would have extra meetings with him where we would sit and go through the publications, particularly if I hadn't had feedback and I really needed feedback, I would actually sit with him with a printed copy of the paper um, and he would go through at the time and provide mm-hmm. feedback. And because he's so experienced and, um, you know, uh, so good at writing and, and has so much um, practice, he was very good just to be able to do that on the spot. Mm. Um, and at least then... I had something to go away with. Mm. So I think you have to be adaptable to what works for your supervisors. Like I think that's really important and it's not always going to work the way you want to work. Mm. So, you know, it might be that I need feedback on a paper, but if um, that person has five talks to write or is writing a New England paper, my, my PhD paper is not going to be the priority. Um, so you have to then be like, okay, well, how can I make this work? What, what can we do? And sometimes that was actually sitting with a physical paper and going through mm. it or just sending a section and saying, this is the section I'm really stuck on. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell me what I need to do? And he would be like, no, cut that out, put this in. And you'd think that's so simple. Why could I not think of that? <laughs> Fresh um, pair of eyes. Yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's right. Someone who yeah. hasn't been up all night yeah. thinking about it yeah. and stressing about it. Always removed from it as well, yeah. which I think is good. If they haven't seen it for a while, that's really good. Mm. Um, and then I think the third thing is that, um, and and this sort of happened towards the end of my PhD, um, they said to me, it's your thesis. So they'd given me feedback and I think I was wanting a bit more feedback and um, there was a few things that I wasn't quite happy with, but they just said to me, well, it's your thesis. So if you want to fix it up and change it, then you do it. We've given you feedback. Mm. Um, and I think that's important too, because at the end of the day, it is your work. Mm. So they will give you feedback on uh, up until a point. But after that, if they've looked at it a couple of times, that's probably all they want to look at yeah. it. Yeah. And so it's up to you. I think, you know, it's an interesting comment, isn't it? It's um, when do you know that you are actually done? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that you're happy with the, yeah. the version that you're yeah. about to submit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing that I didn't realize was that the plan would change the whole way through. So when I first started, I had a really nice plan and I thought, well, this will be my PhD, but it changed up until like three months before I submitted, we, we drew a line in the sand and said, okay, we are not making any more changes to the content Mm. of this thesis, but it had changed the whole time at every review, even in between like formal reviews, we were making changes. We were putting work in, we were taking work out. Um, Because things over the course of like three or four years Mm. is a long time. So there was a couple of pieces of work that popped up that were perfect for my thesis that we really couldn't say no to. And so then we were like, okay, well, what will we take out? We'll take that out and we'll put this in. So um, I think just being flexible with that too, because ultimately you end up with a better thesis if you Mm. can make it fit better. Um, 
but at, before three months we were like okay it absolutely has to stop that's it <laughs> no more changes um and I don't know I don't know how I knew it was finished I think I was just so sick of it I just didn't want to think about it anymore <laughs> and you published as you went along yeah yeah I did I did have a little flurry at the end of publications which I think happens to a lot of people but I had done um probably half of them before mm. and then the other half um, were done in the second half of my PhD and were in various stages. Um, and, you know, I, the other thing that I thought was that the, the work would be done in the order that I'd planned it in my thesis. But, <laughs> chapter 1 through to yes. Chapter 7. <laughs> but, no, and also you have to be working on multiple things at one time, which was a, you know, it was a pretty big learning curve in terms... But that's academic life, I guess. It's a mm. training program, isn't it, for academic life? Um yeah, so often I was working on lots of pieces of work and you'd get stuck with one piece of work and you'd think, I can't do anything more than this and I need feedback, but that's not going to come for three weeks because they're overseas. So I have to now pick up this next piece of work and I'm just going to have to do something on this. Um, so I think being um, really aware of your time frames and having a plan that you can look at sort of month by month where you know where you're expected to be and then if you're behind you need to sort of make a plan as to how you can catch up that piece of work yeah um so i think that's really key is just being flexible to doing lots of things at one time and i mean you also managed to fit in a few life events along the way (laughs) not sure that was the best idea (laughs) getting married having a baby (laughs) yeah and i also had two major surgeries as well so um yeah, look, life also happens, doesn't it? So I didn't really plan to have... I, like, I wanted to have a baby, so that was fine. That was planned. Um, but I didn't have, plan to have sort of two major surgeries during the process. And um, it, I guess the point is that life just happens mm. along the way and you've got to be flexible to whatever happens. Um, and before the surgeries, particularly before the first one, I was quite unwell for like six months in terms of like pain and sort of not managing my life very well. So that was difficult um, and it certainly slowed me down. But I think that's the beauty of a PhD too. It's so flexible. So, you know, I had days where I wasn't feeling very well, but I could be at home doing stuff and still ticking things over. And um, I think that's really important. And the same when I um, had maternity leave, um, I... I did take time off, but not a lot of time. Um, I took maternity leave from my scholarship, but I, you know, honestly was working on it probably at the three-month mark. Um, And I don't know if I'd do that again in hindsight. I think I felt like I needed to keep things going. Um, But ultimately, I think it probably just led to being really tired Mm. because you're just tired at that point anyway. Um, But I wanted to keep things going. So I guess, you know, it is good to sort of keep things ticking over, but I don't know if it was the best decision just for Mm. myself. Um, but at the same time, it is nice to be sort of remembering part of your old self when you've got a tiny baby because you think, what have I done to my life? I've just blown it up. (laughs) (laughs) And so the thesis went in, it got examined and passed, Mm -hmm. and what was the feeling at that point, you know, that it was sort of all over, done and dusted, elation? No. No. (laughs) Um, So I felt really flat for about three or four months, which was something that I didn't really expect to happen. It's not that I I didn't expect to feel wonderful because I knew I'd be very tired. So Mm. I expected to feel tired, but I thought that I'd feel tired for maybe a couple of weeks and then I'd just feel better, you know, but I didn't feel like that. Um, And I I need to be careful with my words because I've not had depression and um, I've never been diagnosed with depression, but it certainly felt like a form of 
depression to me Mm. um, to the point that I felt if it continued on for much longer I was going to go and get some help about it because I felt just not myself Um, and the more I've actually talked to people about it a lot of people say they felt the same and I think it's something it's important to acknowledge that it might happen and I think I would have felt a lot better if I'd known that because I would have thought it sort of felt okay Um, maybe I just need to do a bit of more self-care and it will go away. Whereas I think I was trying to push myself through it, thinking this is not right, why am I feeling like this? But actually I probably just needed to let myself be. And and in the last few months I I did sort of look after myself a lot better and I feel almost back to normal. So I think it's just something that I think it's just a huge piece of work and um, I was trying to finish it over sort of the January, February period, which is not a great period. So I worked through the whole of Christmas to try and get it finished so I didn't have a break. Um, And so I think it's very important to try and have regular breaks and actually let yourself have those breaks. Um, And I think for academic life, one of the the best things about it is that it's so flexible, but that's also the worst thing. (laughs) because it's always there and you can take your laptop anywhere um, and the internet is nearly everywhere now Um, so I think that's something that's really important for academic life after a PhD if that's what you pursue um, because you need to have breaks Mm. and I think you really risk burnout if you don't do that so Mm. I think I'd probably just push myself to the point of exhaustion and then also as you said I'd had quite a few life events that I'd push myself through as well. So just practicing a bit more self-care is important. And I did have a holiday um, after I submitted my PhD, but it was just sort of um, seven to eight days and it probably wasn't enough really. Mm. Um, But I had lots of things going on here at work that I needed to get on with. So again, life just happens, doesn't it? What can you do? Um, But I think think it's okay if you feel flat and tired, just Mm. be nice to yourself actually practice some self-care and if it goes on for longer than you think it should or you feel really terrible you should get some help Mm. yeah I don't think you can underestimate how exhausted you are by the end of it um not necessarily physically but mentally (laughs) as well you know it's um a huge chunk of your life isn't it for three or four or eight years however long it takes I remember when I finished my master's of public health I worked full-time and did a part-time MPH and I didn't have children or anything at that point but I remember when I finished the three-year sort of degree I slept for about two weeks like I was so tired and exhausted Um, so I think that just is that mental exhaustion but this time I have a toddler um, I have a job I have lots of other things going on and I couldn't really do that so I think um, I think it was just my body saying you're exhausted Mm. and you need to rest Mm. yeah yeah. So in terms of self-care now, what do you do to look after yourself and sort of, you know, either try and prevent falling into, you yeah. know, a bit of a hole or, you know, help and get yourself out of it? Um, I think I'm much better at self-care now. So um, I my personality is that I'm a perfectionist type A driver. So, like, I never stop, basically, um, which is very dangerous. And I've had to learn over time to manage that. So there's very good things about that personality in that I'm very productive and hopefully I'll be successful in things because I make things happen. But the flip side is that I am at a high risk of burning out and, you know, running myself into the ground. So I have to be careful about that. So I think just um, I just monitor how I feel. So if I'm feeling really tired, um, I will take some time out for myself. I don't push myself past that point of exhaustion. I used to, but I don't now. Um, sleep is very important to me, and I'm someone that needs a lot of sleep, which I think is good. So it's like a not negotiable. I go to bed at sort of 9.30 every night, um, and 
if it's 10 o'clock, that's like way too late. And I can't <laughs> cope. But I think that's good. It's something yeah. that I really just um, prioritise. And if I've had some late nights, that's okay, but I make sure I try and catch mm-hmm. up. So I can never sleep in because I have a toddler, so I just go to bed early. But that's something I always do, and I think that's really important, and it certainly helps me feel like I can function and mm-hmm. feel well. Um, I like to knit, so I knit a lot. Um, and I'm at the phase of life where lots of my friends are having babies, so that's good. So I knit lots of cute baby things <laughs> to give people. Um, I like to watch TV, so... I have a very active mind and I find like some reality shows or just like a Netflix series or something is actually a way that my mind can stop. Mm. Um, I, I find things like even reading books and things that still my mind is so active, active and I, um, you know, I read a lot for work and I'm mm. thinking all day. So I need at the end of the day, I need to do something that just quietens my mind. Um, so knitting is good for that. Um, just going for a walk, Pilates and yoga is something that I I'm not doing at the moment, but I do do and find it good for um, that mental sort of Mm. break. Um, And then just watching some sort of mindless TV so I don't have to think is really important. Um, I have tried meditation in the past and I'm not doing it regularly at the moment, but it is something that I do find beneficial and I do want to keep trying to try and make a practice of it. Um, I've had trouble kind of implementing it properly, but I would like to keep trying because I think Mm. I do see the benefit of it particularly for someone who has an active mind mm. like I do yeah just being able to sort of wind down completely and exactly. yeah, try and stop that mental chatter yeah. going on yeah. and I guess the final thing is I really like holidays most people do <laughs> um but I really do try and take holidays mm. and I do try and not work on those holidays yeah. um and I love to travel as well so just getting out and even going to a new place I just really find refreshing and mm. um it's just nice to spend time with family so, mm. yeah yeah and I mean like you say these days it's too easy with connectivity to stay connected absolutely um so being able to turn devices Mm. off and just yeah ignore them (laughs) i think something i've had to become more comfortable with too is that work is really my passion and that's okay like i hear a lot of people talk about oh you know you need to switch off from work and and that's true but i really love my work Mm. and i I, it's an interest for me it's like a hobby i just love it um and i'm passionate about it and so sometimes on the weekends I do work because I feel like it and I want to and I think if you're choosing to do it that's okay but it might mean that during the week I might want to do something and mm-hmm. so I'll take that time back during the week if that's what works for me um, or if it, you know juggling family life if it works for me to do a bit of work um, on the weekend as extra because I have to get home early to pick up my daughter or something then I can do it that way so yeah. I think just being flexible and integrating work mm-hmm. into your life is important too because it helps you not feel so stressed that you have to do the nine to five like you can just kind of think about it over the whole week and Mm. make sure you get your work done but then you can also fit in time for yourself too yeah and obviously having an employer who's happy for that to happen (laughs) is hugely important as well yeah yeah so what's next on the research agenda then um well as part of my phd we got a large grant to sort of do the next thing which is really really exciting um it's called intent and it uses a supplemental pn intervention in icu 
uh, when the patients need it but follows them out to the ward and so we're not doing supplemental PN on the ward but we're doing a tailored sort of dietetic intervention to try and see what happens when we couple an intervention in ICU with a post-ICU intervention and what happens with nutrition delivery. Um, one of the big gaps at the moment is that the studies to date have just looked at short-term nutrition and the way nutrition works is it's probably more of a long-term thing. Mm. Um, and so we want to start looking at what that might do for functional recovery and even clinical outcomes. Um, and I guess part of my job now is to lead the nutrition program here at the ANSIC RC. So we're developing new ideas and trying to come up with the next thing at the same time. So um, we'll watch this space, I guess, for the next 12 months and see what we come up with. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. And, yeah. You know, good to see another big trial coming along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course, we've just had the results presented of the target trial, yes. which was yeah. a massive undertaking um, in the ICUs in Australia and New Zealand as well. Yeah. So, you know, certainly generating a lot of evidence yeah. <laughs> in terms of either what we do or what we don't need to do. Yeah. <laughs> Again. Yeah. And there's going to be, I mean, the target study has been um, instrumental even in terms of the methodology that we used. Um, and so there'll be a protein study coming up to answer a question and like with the target energy study we'll start with a small pilot study to test our processes but it uses a similar sort of mechanism in the way that we'll deliver the intervention. Um, so there's going to be a lot of work um, that comes from sort of the target group in terms of what we've done so that's really exciting and starting to generate sort of world-class evidence in nutrition which is really really important and you know regardless of what it shows we want to do the best thing for the patients so we should be doing whatever that is so it doesn't matter what it shows if it's high quality evidence and we need to be doing what what the evidence is telling us we should do mm. oh no that's fantastic is there any sort of um i guess more left field nutrition um, interventions that might be brought into play or tested um, you know we've looked at supplemental parenteral nutrition now we've looked at enteral feeds um, but you know fairly commonly available market ready type products um, should we be looking more closely at you know feed that the patient's family bring in from home or you know whizzing that up in a kitchen and giving it to them <laughs> I don't think so nutritional supplements <laughs> look I know there's a lot of interest now in sort of plant-based diets and even mm. vegan lifestyles as a way to um, promote health and I think there is some really good evidence is starting to emerge around that um, I don't know how that's going to translate to ICU or if it ever will um, but I think as I sort of said at the start, we need to be thinking outside of the box a bit with nutrition. And at the moment, we've just kind of thought of it as a fluid that we hang, but it's much more than that. And perhaps we do need to start thinking about some of these more novel things that we can research and how that might impact um, on our patient's recovery. And I think it's going to change over time. I really think we have to start thinking about these patients, not just in the ICU, but as their whole hospital rehab admission. Mm. Um, and I think in the past, that's something that the intensivists have just focused on their patient while they're in ICU. And I know that's changed now and everyone's very focused on recovery and people are very focused on, you know, the mental health of the patients and how that recovers long term. And that's excellent. And the nutrition recovery is part mm. of that. And it's not just about what happens in ICU now. Um, we might underfeed them early in ICU, but put them at great risk later on in their hospital stay. And so that's something we really need to know. Um, so I think starting to actually look at the whole patient 
um, in many aspects, so that includes nutrition, is really important. So I can't answer your question. I don't know what will happen, but in 30 years' time, we'll probably be looking back and thinking, I can't believe we did this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nutrison? What's yeah, that? yeah, we'll be like, oh, everyone makes their own food now and brings it in. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah exactly. It'll be interesting to see, won't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, thank you for your time today. And um, it's been really interesting talking from a nutrition perspective um, because, you know, possibly is something that we don't um, pay a lot of <laughs> attention to sometimes with our patients. So thanks for all the tips and um, good luck with your next study. Thanks so much. It's been great to chat. Cool. Thanks, Emma. I hope you enjoyed that. It was a great conversation. Emma is so passionate about improving the nutritional care that we provide to our patients and the importance of everyone on the team being involved in that. Loved the discussion we started to have at the end too about what the future may hold. Who knows what the nutritional landscape may look like in 10 years. I also think her PhD advice is spot on. The ability to be flexible and adjust the plan as it kept changing is amazing and really is a huge credit to Emma and her supervisory team. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you could join us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome and thanks for joining us. If you're a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you are enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. And until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.